And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Matt Slater with us as usual. And our guest today is Gary Cook, who over the course of a 30-year career has held executive positions at Nike, where he led the Jordan brand. He was also the CEO of Premier League side Manchester City, helping to secure the £210 million takeover by the current owner, Sheikh Mansour. And more recently, he's been working in esports, trying to bring the Ryder Cup to Lancashire and advising on club takeovers, including Chris Kirchner's attempt to buy Derby. There is a lot to get into with you, Gary. Um, just start, though, by I've, I've given a brief summary there of, of your career. Just expand on it a little bit for us, please. Yeah, sure. Well, my executive career started actually in the United States, Mark. I got myself into the sporting goods industry after I went to Los Angeles back in the late 80s. I ended up working for various companies, but joined Nike in 1996 and stayed with them until I came to Manchester City in 2008. And at Nike... My last position was president of the Michael Jordan brand. I think pretty much most people around the world will know that one. Living all over the world with them. And then Manchester City, of course, well-documented for the good and the bad, of course. And then I went off to the UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship, and we sold that in 2016. And I moved back to uh, a place I fell in love with, which is Cheshire here in England. Let's start with Nike and, and Jordan. How much business acumen did you learn from Jordan? There are two or three principles that you learn at Nike. You know, there are those that are academics and there are those that gain experience through their work. Uh, And I was at Nike for 12 years and there were a couple of things that were really key at Nike and that is the responsibility of people within the organizations. Phil Knight used to say, Brands don't make decisions, companies don't make decisions, people do. We have a a keen interest on and focus on people. Nike was always about, they say, marketing and product. I think it's a bit more than that. I think that would be a a little thin on the ground to to say that. What I learned about Michael was that there's rarefied air in the most exceptional of athletes. And you might include Tiger Woods in that. You might include some of the greats. There's something very different about what makes them great. And so I learned an awful lot about athletes are very important in the world of sport. That's not rocket science. I learned the impact of fan behavior and consumers. We call them consumers, but really it's those that love and are fanatical about something that was very important and you've got to try and understand the consumers understand the products that you serve and give people access to those products in whatever form and and I think that that three-layered model could could refer to pretty much anything so I learned that a lot as you have progressed through your roles you'll have various experiences of the of the power of the individual even in a team sport. And and there's huge discussion, isn't there, nowadays, Gary, when you sign Ronaldo, your social media following goes up bucket loads, the whoever you've signed him from drops bucket loads. And we get lots of research in broadcasting about younger demographics nowadays tend to follow the athlete rather than the team in some ways in, in team sports. Do you think Jordan was the first example of that? Yes, he probably was, but it was a a different uh, breakthrough for him. It was nobody had ever done what he did. Okay, so so that was important. And he was a Chicago Bulls guy and, and, and that's all well documented. But I think, Mark, you touch on a very interesting subject, which I followed quite a lot through my career. And that is the, again, consumer behavior, the people's behavior, the way that we think. I don't know about you, 
Mark. You were from Rochdale, so I don't know if you're a Rochdale fan or a United <laughs> fan. I, I don't know which one. But there'll be a point in time when you enjoyed your first experience and it may, it was there with you forever. It probably happened between the ages of 10 and 15 mm. because that's when we all make our decisions. Something, again, I learned at Nike. So therefore, you have to impact those decisions. We were taught that it was your team and it didn't matter who played for them. It didn't matter who... And they had a name, a number on their back. They didn't have a name on their back, yeah. right? So, so then let's step forward to where we are today. FIFA, the game, which is an electronic game, has more fans, more followers, more watchers than any other sport, including Super Bowl in, or event, including football. So, but what is that all about? That is all about name and number and individual, right? And even today's and yesterday's. So we now are more interested in individual players than we, than we are actually about our team. And people talk to me about, you know, I bought a Barcelona shirt, although I'm a City fan from way back. Where, so we've seen these, these things move through consumer behavior. And now what happens is we've got kids who support the players and may not actually support the team. So remarkable sort of, you know, first chapter there working with a guy like Jordan, Manchester City. So you swapped one dominant brand for a middling brand? There's an end cap to your commentary there, Matt, which was the, the reason that Michael uh, was so influential for me and really started to influence my thinking was, what do you do with a retired basketball player? There were many at Nike that said, well, he's a contracted athlete, let him go. Right. So he could have gone in to do something else. And the, that would have been a different pathway, sliding doors. The difference was, how do we make something of this to be bigger than it really was? And, and so therefore you create a, a brand icon and, and all that comes with it. Right. So, so there's the cap. When you move to a football club, they all have a personality. There are 90 of them in this country. There's a lot more, of course, but 90 in the league. And they all have a personality, but they can all be very, very different. And so how do you take the history and the heritage of what we know, which is in the rearview mirror, and make it something very different as we look forward? And I think what Manchester City was for me was how do you be the agent for change and to create the catalysts that require that change to happen? And, and as you well know, uh, and as Mark well know, well knows there are so many variables in football in sport uh, because you know luck can get in the way but at the same time you've got to have a, a very clear plan but I do believe that there's 90 of them they've all got the same product they, you just got to try and figure out what you're going to do with yours well exactly and let's just remind listeners though at, at the precise moment you join Manchester City because I think if people didn't know your story they'd assume that you were hired around the time of, the, of the, the Abu Dhabi takeover. But you weren't. You were hired by their predecessor, Saxon Shinawatra. That's right. Now, so just, you know, explain how that happened. And then I think, crucially, what happened soon after you started working? I'd spent a year of having conversations with um, a couple of football clubs. I loved working for Nike and Michael and all those great things. But boyhood dream, Matt, you've got to go. That opportunity comes up and you go get it, right? So... So I did and chased it, but I didn't really think about what was in front of me. I think the boyhood dream was all emotional. And what I didn't realize, I was being hired by Tax in Chinuatra within 10 days, well-documented. He was being uh, hauled in for uh, human rights violations. A lot of his assets had been seized, got some political problems. And all of a sudden, I'm moving from Portland, Oregon to Ancoats in Manchester <laughs> and life is now all very different. And uh, we are on the verge of calling in the administrators. And so from there, you've really got to pick yourself up. You kind of figure out where your furniture is and realize that you've probably made the biggest mistake of your entire life and leaving the security to this new world. You then try and figure out how to package the club and sell the club and you work with a whole bunch of people and you start trawling up and down the city of London and try and find somebody who has an interest and you meet with various characters and people and 
And then all of a sudden, the rest is history. And the City fans could not have been uh, more fortunate to have found that um, that that prospective new buyer. This may seem a very, very basic question to you. But when you're looking to sell your football club, and let's be honest, there are a lot of fans at the moment in the championship who are well aware that their clubs are up for sale. And if you are at a football club and looking to sell it, who do you pick up the phone to first? You're talking to private investment companies. You're talking to, uh, you know, you you might be talking to um, high net worth individuals. A lot of them have, have pretty become pretty well known that they're out looking they may have been out looking and you'll go to various institutions and organizations i think in in essence as you roll forward you know it wasn't an easy ride either i think if you remember when we went through the transition there was a guy called Solomon Alfaim um matt will uh, uh, will definitely remember that because the consternation that that caused and matt you know vicky Kloss at manchester city who is one of the legends of the communications world she was the one that sort of was the sense and sensibility of any of it she was the one that called foul on on a lot of this stuff and so we really had to try and get ourselves sorted out but you know the great part about all of that uh, and I wouldn't swap a lot of it for the world. It enabled us as a football club to then start instituting plans and strategies that were really akin to some of the work that I'd cut the world that I'd come from. It also encompassed some of the world that already existed. But what a wonderful base to work from. And as you start to map it out and move forward, a lot of those great plans that we put in place back in 2008 are still there by virtue of the people and the continuancy of, of execution. So it worked out well in the end. I think they always say, you know, out of something bad might come something good. So I would like to think that's how it worked. Did you not effectively pitch Man City to Abu Dhabi? Yeah, there were some individuals that we hosted at a Manchester City versus West Ham game. It was August of 2008. In a box, we had a couple of their representatives and we presented the story. And the story was not about, you know, we're going to get three points every Saturday and we're going to win the champions. That wasn't what it was. It was really about Manchester, the city of Manchester and the opportunities that are coming. The way that global media has changed. And, and this, is, this is a great way to, to promote the proxy brand of the nation of Abu Dhabi. Most importantly, and really, really keen for both parties, was the importance of the football club to the community. And if you think about it, every football, every community has a, has a sports team. It's some have more than one. But at the end of the day, we see that they are the anchor for the brand of that city. They communicate worldwide. They are they're able to say who they are and what they do. When we think Newcastle, do we think of the city or do we think of the football team? And I think there's a correlation between the two. It's nice, isn't it, when they work together? Uh, and I think that's why I think Manchester has become one of the most prominent football brands in the world by virtue of both United and City um, and, and what they represent and I don't believe there isn't a coincidence that the economic uplift in the city hasn't come from sport. I really believe it has. And I, and I believe that Sir Howard Bernstein and Richard Lees were instrumental in that. They saw the value of sport and football and, and all of those things. So we, we've covered, if you think about this conversation, we're going everywhere from being a young boy to supporting your team, to liking the players that you like. Now we're talking about an investment sector which is football is an investment sector. If we look at the valuations, now we're talking about the catalyst for economic development and growth and how wonderful that is. But everybody in their constituencies has their own view on what that should look like. Did it help that Manchester has a has a storied history as well, whether that be music, well, music in particular, obviously, has, has played in the same way that you could say the same, same with Liverpool, obviously. Did the owners take into, or the prospective new owners then, take into account other aspects of Manchester on a global stage, or was it simply football? Because you related it to Newcastle, which has a storied history itself, but maybe not the musical side of things, as an example. I always look at entry points, 
Mark. So this comes from my, it's a dreadful word brand, but I'll use it uh, because it gets overused. But there's an entry point when you enter into a brand. And if you entered Manchester in the 90s, it represented something very different than when it did when you entered it in the 50s. And we all know why. And evolution and generational change and economic change helps that. I know they were not just buying a football club. They were buying the representation of that football club upon its community. And equally, what could we do with that football club as it represents one of the major cities in the world in football? I always used to say if London is the home of football, Manchester might well be the heart of it. And how can we use that as part of our brand portfolio, which includes Abu Dhabi Racetrack, the Formula One, it includes golf tournaments, and it's all part of a major global strategy for Abu Dhabi as a nation. And on that basis, being in the right place at the right time with the right proposition in the right city certainly helped. You mentioned the sort of correlation with Newcastle, which is another subject that we are going to get into. Was Amanda Staveley, was she was she in that box for the, that West Ham game? Yes, she was, Matt. She was definitely instrumental in, uh, in introducing the right people to the right proposition. Let's explore what I think you have said to me in the past about this, this that... Obviously, money helps, right? Money, money clearly is part of the Man City story. But I know that you feel quite strongly that the money on its own is not going to turn Man City or or any club into a global footballing superpower. You need a plan. So go back to the beginning and just talk to me about how this plan for the regeneration of Manchester, for the campus, how quickly. Did you get it? Did someone literally have, right, I've got it. This is what we're going to do over the 2009, 2010, 2011. Or did it happen organically? First of all, I think it's about declaring your ambition is the very first thing. We see a lot of clubs who, they use this term, acquire a football club. Historically, it might not have been one of the leaders in the sport and they'll declare that they're going to make it a global brand. And almost like you're going to flick a switch, you know, you'll be wanted by millions of people around the world. That's not the case. So you anchor yourself around your ambition. The ambition for Manchester City was to create a world-class, sustainable, successful football club for its community and its future. And so if you start there, what are those things that you require? Well, you need some infrastructure. And then you, you, you assess your, in, your existing infrastructure. And we were at uh, Carrington. You may, have, may well remember that. And you look at that facility and you say, is that fit for purpose for where we're going? So if you're going to attract some of the world's leading footballers, are they going to want to go to Carrington, which is an old social club, which has been converted into a bit of a, a training ground? And so you have to sort of do this assessment of where are we? Where do we want to go? And then how are we going to get there? And, and I think then that is no single person. That is no single ideation. That is a group of people who you've entrusted and you've brought in. We brought in Brian Marwood to look at football. We brought in Graham Wallace to look at operations. Uh, David Pullen looked at the brand and commercial. And we had a whole bunch of people who are still there today, Danny Wilson and all those guys. And they, they were all great. And then John Stemp. Uh, came in and looked at infrastructure. And so when you then start to talk about that, you say, okay, where should we all center our energy? And our energy should be centered in one place. If you don't, you often get the example of the manager feels that the training ground is his and the, and the offices are yours. And you then there's no, there's no link between the two. What we wanted to do was to create one environment. So when we were on a a season, a pre-season tour to uh, America, I took Haldun and the guys to Nike, where there's a 360-acre campus. And on that campus, you can get your hair cut, you can go to the bank, you can go work out, you can play tennis, you can play five-a-side football, you can work, you can chat. And that's the lifestyle that we were in, um, you know, in, in, envisioning. And so with that, we came back and said, okay, where could we do that? We met with the council and the council said, so that's infrastructure. When you talk about building football capability, Brian's job wasn't to go out and pick the team. Brian's job was to develop 
a strategy which we called at the time the house of football which was embedded in where do we get the best academy players how do we develop them how do we continue to grow them what facilities do they work in what education are we providing and and we just went through every single area and we improved it and that's what you do so you declare your ambition then you go and and that actually applied to the ground staff because you would say to the groundsman Roy at the time why are we not the best football pitch in the country and i'll bet you a pound to a penny if you ask that question of anybody for their particular subject they'll give you a list of why they're not good enough now what you have to do is give them and delegate them the authority to go get that done and one of those included taking a concert off the football pitch that year because Roy said these concerts ruin my football pitch i need 12 weeks to grow the okay great will you improve yes and i don't know if you know but there is a league table for yes. the, yeah. the, the yeah. standard of football pitches so my my point to them was you have to be in the top 4 because the players who play on your surface are going to be in the top 4 which means that we've all got to understand that ambition How many times do you ask the question and they go it's nothing to do with me that's down to the players but actually it's not in my opinion again mark i and and mm. matt I, yeah. i always come back with my opinion but that's how we approached it and a lot of people bought into that and they then feel that they are all part of the ambition and i think that ferran and and pep and all the work that they do is a continuation of that and i think the culture sits around that which is what makes it a dynasty versus a very successful football team on a saturday and i wonder whether that answers what was going to be my next question which is do you think for all of that and i completely i completely agree with you gary and actually my time's going to to manchester city and being around the campus great honestly it's an amazing place everybody seems really happy there it's one heck of a facility holistically everybody at city seems to have got it right those people who aren't city fans will say that's great but the success is because you can buy raheem sterling and bernardo silva and pay 100 million for jack grealish and so on and so forth can you be a successful football club without the money to spend on the players you're going to take us down a pathway that could go in multiple directions <laughs> one of which one of which of course would be What the, is success? That's that, the I mean that's the well, first that's the first point actually. That that is and it's and it's and it's relevant to whoever you ask that question of, right? So I believe that if you are we we got into our world prior to financial fair play being as robust as it is today. So the question is can we restrict people's capability now using regulation? Yes, supposedly. If you didn't meet that threshold and cut off at a certain point in time it feels that the sort of this rationalization process now happening which is the great get greater and the rest i'm afraid it's all a bit challenging so i i believe that that has happened but that is no different to any other industry i think supermarket industry probably went through the same thing thing in the 70s and the 80s we had green grocers and butchers and but now the supermarket so so everybody's gone through this rationalization where the 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 bigger get bigger and that does enable them to apply resources for the talent so yes is the answer we all hope the governing element which is financial fair play will restrict that getting too crazy. So I think the question then leads itself if I may ask you one if I may mm. be so bold. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think Newcastle could do what Manchester City did? Eventually, I think they probably I think they will. I, I eventually, but there are an awful number of steps to go before they get to anywhere near that infrastructure being the prime one Gary because there is no infrastructure really. those who are at newcastle tell me there is very little infrastructure i also think and that i'm not sure how much the knives were out for manchester city back in the the sort of 2008 2009 whenever you may tell me differently i sense from other interviews that i've done and from talking to people that within the premier league the knives are out for newcastle to make sure if they are going to do what manchester city have done 
it takes them an awful lot longer to do it. That's a fair comment. And I think with your knives out comment, I've, I've still got plenty in my back. Um, and and so, so, yes, they were out. But then weren't they out at Chelsea mm. for, for, for the, for the organisation and what they were doing? And, you know, this, I, 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 you know, it's an old saying, people don't like change. Yeah, OK, get it. Is the game better? Is the, is, a, is the Premier League better for having them? Uh, you know, I would always ask that question. And I remember talking to Richard Scudamore uh, in depth about a lot of this. And he created a model that brought the biggest and the best. And it created a, a product that you could take around the world, which was the biggest and the best. And in most cases, the Premier League still broadcasts on national television networks in countries where it's much bigger than their own league and so is that to the detriment of the game or is it to the benefit of the game i don't have an answer because it's an open-ended question but one thing's for sure the change has created a different level of the game i then would addend that comment and and i lived in the united states for a long time i used to love going to an event in the United States. And when I came to football back in England, I used to think to myself, wow, is this it? They're going to, we, we basically put the game on. We tell you what time it starts. You buy your ticket, however you buy it. And not, that wasn't always a great experience. The food and beverage offering was poor, uh, but you were there for 90 minutes and people used to say, yeah, but that's what it is. That's what it should be. And then we ask the question, is that the way we all live now? We don't. We want an experience. We want to be able to access more, multiple things and enjoy different things. So, so I think the game is as as, as different. I think the media world has changed the way the game is presented. The fan experience is very different. And again, Mark, I'll go all the way back. If you're 10 years old and you enter supporting Manchester City today, which is at the heart of what we all want to do is create fans. He won't be thinking and worrying about all the stuff that we talk about. He'll be thinking, can I get some good food? Can I listen to some cool music? Will I be able to see the players? Will I be able to watch a great game of football? Will I be able to buy a shirt with one of the greatest players? That's what they think. And so we, we sometimes look through it with our, 40, 50, 60-year-old heads on it. But if I'm taking a 10-year-old to a game or my 8-year-old daughter to a game or whatever, should I be concerned as a fan whether a country owns my football club or not? Yes, that would be a verging on a political question that I would say that's your choice as a parent. That's absolutely your choice. If that's important to you, then make it your choice. But at the end of the day, the core product is a football match in a football stadium. And it's your choice whether you go to Altrincham or Manchester United. So if you are, if the question is, should we be restrictive on who the owners of football clubs are? That's a pathway that leads you down a whole different set of circumstances, which, you know, that'd be a whole different podcast, I would think. Gary, just on that, I can't remember... Manchester City, and you'll you'll be able to answer this question better than me. I can't remember that many questions about the UAE and what what your owners were up to in different spheres of their of their of their lives. Was did anyone ever talk to you about sports washing, for example? No, no. I, I and Matt, I I used to be very very clear at all points, uh, including when I was engaged with Tax in Shinawatra. My job was to run a football club and to create a successful and sustainable football club for the future, embodying everything that history and heritage of the football club for its fans. If you start to get too engaged in those aspects outside of that, then you'll clearly lose focus. Okay. I'm asking you for your opinion now. Why do you think it's changed? Why do you think Newcastle was such a different experience? Uh, which part, Matt? Well, the sports washing element of it. The questions around the ownership, 
I mean, it's still it's still the big issue, I think. You're a, an experienced reporter in the world of media. You would love me to give you an answer of whether I think it, it, it's relevant to that football club. We all know, because it's well documented, of the reputation of the owners. And you have to make a judgment whether that's important to you. And there are those that do, and there are those that may not. But that shouldn't, in my opinion, again, my opinion, the league have a very robust structure by which they make these choices. If they deem that that is suitable in their world, then they have to stand up and be accountable for that decision. I didn't make that decision. You don't make that decision. You can have an opinion on it. But at the end of the day, that's why we have regulators. That's why we have competitive sporting bodies to make those decisions for us. Once those decisions are made, we should then try and find a way to understand how it's going to impact our team, our club, our our local community. But again, I always think if you mix politics with sport, it's a very dangerous cocktail. But it's impossible to avoid, isn't it? And this this isn't about Newcastle. This is just this is just in general. You know, we've we in this course of this conversation, Gary, have had some you know some romantic moments, romanticizing sport, talking about ourselves as kids and going to games for the first time. But if if I go, you know, the very first Olympics that I can really remember, or the first two that I can remember, Moscow and LA, both blighted actually by political causes and boycotts. So it's we're about to have a Winter Olympics in China. The political and social and financial gain that can be made through sport leaves it open to be manipulated, doesn't it? And there are positives and negatives to that. I mean, you could look at, you know, Nike and, and, and Colin Kaepernick or Kaepernick and, and the N or whatever it may be. You don't want to mix sport and politics, ideally, But the idea that there is a purity there is nonsense because for decades they have been linked. Absolutely, uh, Mark. Totally concur. And I think your statement there to just, it's naive for us to think that there's purity is absolutely the point. And with that said, it's any area or what I call asset sector or, or, or investment sector that can have impact on a global scale. Uh, in in the world that we live in today, then there's going to be attention paid. I worked at Nike when we had uh, labor issues of the manufacturing of products, and we have to you have to address that. And the question is, whose responsibility is it to address it? Well, it was Nike's responsibility to address it, so they did, and they came out with a solution. The question that I think that begs is who's ultimately responsible for making the decision on where we draw the line in that statement of purity, which is the right side of the line and which is the wrong side of the line. And we've all got our opinion, but there is a governing, bo- there is a governing body and there is an, arb- an administrator that needs to make those calls and those decisions. The decision has been made, and this is fascinating with you, both from both from being with Nike, but also with 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 City and 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 even UFC as well. You talk about choice. If Nike had continued to 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 you know have their clothes made in a certain way, my my moral stance would make it very easy to switch to Adidas or Puma or whatever because. You know, there is. I don't don't have a massive loyalty to a sport brand, and I can make my moral decisions on. Once your football clubs, your football club, Gary, it is very difficult, very difficult to change. I don't have a choice, and I do wonder how many execs within football realize they have their fans over a barrel because we cannot choose. It's very easy to say we can. But, in, but practically, we can't because I th- yeah, you're, I, our, you're, you're our club. They're our club. You're not, you're not my sports brand. That's absolutely right. Now, let, let's, let's paint, let's romance again, if we may. Let's imagine that um, the owners of Newcastle Football Club find a way to develop a strategy and a plan that creates infrastructure that helps the community of Newcastle 
They work with the city of Newcastle on creating inward investment, which actually turns a lot of the infrastructure in Newcastle that's not football related. And I'm talking mixed use housing, retail, mm. industrial, and they turn that into the next generation of living. They create jobs. They create an economy. You know where I'm going with this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And would we then judge them for their responsibility as the owner of the football club, or are we going to continue to judge them for their broader political approach? The same way, and I can only speak from experience, Mark, one of the largest real estate investors in Manchester in the residential sector is Abu Dhabi. And Ancoats is a different place today than it was because of Abu Dhabi. Mm. The campus that we built, which is a world-leading sports performance institute, also has community facilities, including a school or an academy school, and it also has some medical facilities and some playing facilities for the community in the neighborhood. Now, that far is what their responsibility is in this particular area and this particular question. And they've gone above and beyond because they are the catalysts for change in the city. Let's assume they do that in Newcastle. Wouldn't that be great? I always think let the judgment begin when we see the manifestation of a strategy and a plan as it applies to the football club before, we, before the judgment gets made of whether it was good, bad or indifferent. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Gary, as a brand guy, have Manchester City been good for Abu Dhabi? I would say... Yes, but I think you'd have to ask somebody from, you know, the executive mm. affairs or, or somebody. But if I was giving my opinion, I would say 
it's certainly been a growth element. People used to criticize us for using Abu Dhabi entities within the infrastructure of commercial growth. And, and I would use an airline Etihad f- for, for part of that. There was a reason. It was part of the strategy and the plan. And I would say Etihad are particularly proud of their relationship with Manchester City. They've grown. They, the traffic in and out of Manchester Airport on Etihad Airlines has certainly grown. I know that for a fact. So I think uh, it's, you'd have to ask them individually, but I would say yes. Given your previous answer about you know, let's, let's judge Newcastle once we've seen their plan develop. And, and, if, and if they were to have the same transformative impact in Newcastle that, that Abu Dhabi have had in Manchester, then, then I think we will see them, I don't know if entirely differently, but we will see, we'll, we'll view them in the round, I guess. You've got an awful lot of experience, Gary. Would you like a job at Newcastle? Would you, would you be willing to help them? That's an interesting one. I'd never, well, I, there's, there's, they're, they're looking for a chief executive. I've no doubt they are, although I believe they've got, they've got one uh, you know, currently. That's, I couldn't even read and answer that. Here's one thing I do know. And any chief executive or any leader in any business worth their salt, I think is more prominent in football. Mark, you may appreciate this. Uh, it's been 11 years now since I was at Manchester, I started at Manchester City or left Manchester City, I should say. And it was a very, very difficult ride, but a professional experience I would never want to go through ever again. And there are reasons for that. But more importantly, you live so emotionally and it becomes your personality and it takes over your life it's a hard thing to recover from. But you do see CEOs who go from one club to the next and they just carry it on like it's a job and nobody really cares too much. And, and I find that personally really interesting because I gave my life to Manchester City. I've turned down plenty of jobs to go back into football for many reasons. And I still maintain relationships with a lot of the people at Manchester City and a lot of the things I've done in football, I've always called the board at Manchester City and say, do you mind if I... And I don't know if that exists everywhere. I'm not, I don't know. It's just that, again, is personal choice. So I just find it really interesting that people can just go and treat them like a job because I, I think it's more than that, actually. I, I really do. I think it's more than that because it's about you create a family you're working for people who it means absolutely everything to them every time you congregate at the game. They live their life for it, and I've seen it and witnessed it. It goes beyond anything you could ever imagine. So the short answer would be, if somebody knocked on my door, it would be an honor to be approached. More importantly, takes a big step, that, I think. It would be emotionally difficult for you. I think so. When you look at football at the moment, and there's an article on The Athletic at the moment, actually, by Michael Cox about the respective top leagues and how far ahead in each league uh, the leaders are. City, Paris Saint-Germain, Bayern Munich, of course, Real Madrid, I think Inter Milan as well could go seven points clear in Serie A if they win their game in hand. It's the same sides dominating at the top of those big European leagues come back to EFL and plenty of clubs in trouble, Derby in massive trouble, as we know, you know, Berry going to the wall, et cetera, et cetera. Is football working at the moment? Given your knowledge of the football market, European football, given your North American, here's our, here's our weekly North American uh, sport chat as well on this pod, given your knowledge of North American sports, is European football working at the moment? It works on many levels, but it fails miserably on a couple. And I think one of them is the area of sharing the wealth and the area of, you know, if you look at the model, we found during the pandemic that without media, the whole thing is a deck of cards. We also find, unlike American sports, and I made this comment many, many years ago uh, in my naivete with the British media, that maybe if you drew a line and you 
isolated the league to a certain number of clubs, you would pre- now here's the here's the caveat that people forgot, mm. right? Is in order to protect the owner's investment, which creates more value for the teams, which in turn drives a greater economy. People forgot that bit. The headline was Cook thinks there should be 14 football clubs in a right. So we know how it works. My naivete didn't allow for that. I thought it was a debate. It wasn't. So my thoughts are the owners are not protected. Therefore, we ask them to keep putting their hands in their pockets to subsidize really what has become sort of an emotional attachment. And you really now are saying to an owner, if you want to buy a football club, you better be ready to throw, a, throw away about 150 million because that seems to be the number that everybody loses. And what appetite are you going to have to come in and be a part of that? That's interesting because that then is the part of the game that we don't love. The other part of it is we've got an EFL now, which has a, a massive dichotomy of difference between the, those that came through parachute and still carry parachute and those that have come up and are still trying, trying to compete on a level playing field. So there are many things that I love. Facilities are massively improved. Media has given us all access to content and players and all of that. But I think that the ownership model is somewhat flawed because we're not supporting them. And I wonder whether media is just so influential on the whole thing that if it changes, because we keep saying every time the EFL and the EPL have a round of, yeah. uh, you know, uh, of rights issues, oh, well, they'll never go up, you know. They'll not go up. There's no way they're going to. And I, I haven't seen them go down yet, so... Um, and more more uh, incumbent media platforms are entering the space. So some good, Mark, and some bad. And I'm sorry I sit on the fence. No, 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 no. I just wish actually we, media, football, everybody was just a little bit more grown up to encourage the debate that you that you wanted to have then. Because, because if we don't have the debate, by the time we eventually get round to it, it might be too late. Well, I I really believe that we are a fragmented community, football, let's call it the football, they call it the football family, but it's somewhat dysfunctional in many aspects. You have a PFA that represents the players, you have an LMA that represents the managers, you have an EFL, an EPL, you have an FA, you could go on, and it's like alphabet Mm. soup. And the challenge is not one of them has a common goal with the other and so we then get surprised that the government want to try and, you know, arbitrate. And we get surprised by that. But actually, isn't it, is it not the dysfunction of it all that needs something like that? I've just been involved in trying to acquire a, a, a football club. And, and the, you know, you have a buyer, you have an administrator. I'll tell you, it's, it, it was Derby County and my buyer pulled out just before Christmas, you have the EFL, Uh, you have all of these parties that have completely different agendas. And everybody forgot to ask the council and the fans how to fix it. Because the council will tell you, if you take Derby County away from our football community, from our community, that's going to have a massive impact. And there are football fans who are saying, how can you, how can we allow this to happen to the football club that we've been buying tickets for, for the last 25, 30, 40 years, and even longer if they're generationally, it's got to be broken, Mark. It's got to be broken because nothing ever seems to fix itself. So somebody's got to do it. And I don't know the answer to that either. And it's only, again, my opinion, but I, I, I find it disillusioning that this subject matter, which is the fabric of our culture is torn in so many diff- into so many different pieces and nobody seems able to sew it all back together. Gary, I'm, gl- I'm glad we got to Derby j- just as, as, as we're, we're coming to a close because it was going to be my final question. What's your gut feeling on Derby? I know, I know your guy, Chris Kirchner, has pulled out. Here we are over a month later, still no preferred bidder. We're still waiting for news on how Derby fund the rest of the season. What's what? 
How, how do you see this one playing out? Well, it's interesting. You know, I made a comment earlier. After 11 years, I have an appetite to go and try and do something again with somebody that's different. And so Derby was in a world of hurt. Uh, I, I was speaking actually to Mel Morris many a, over a year ago now. Well, you know, that didn't quite work out. And I'll keep those reasons behind closed doors. We then go into an administrator and the administrator has a job to do. And he's trying to placate everybody, including Middlesbrough Football Club, and everybody's got their own reasons and their right reasons. Um, what I do know is what an absolutely outstanding job and a great learning and training ground for Wayne Rooney and his team. Because to get a tune out of that, while all that's going on in the background, is an incredible, incredible feat. Now, that's the art of survival. Wayne's next challenge was, will be, can I be successful if I have all the right tools in the right place? So that I know. And so it'd be a shame to lose him. But I think that the fractured requirements and everybody's needs are so disparate and the club is in such a dire situation that it's going to take something really magnanimous to pull it out of where it is. And I fear like many, Matt, I fear that it won't be simple. And I think now, and I'm really pleased by this, by the way, because one of my last calls before we pulled out was to speak to Derby Council and ask them, has anybody ever asked you what you kind of would like to see? And of course, no. And then coming 360 degrees back all the way around to where we were at the very start of your show, the people who really make the difference, who it really means an awful lot to, who it really is part of their everyday working life, we've taken our eye off the ball. And I think everything that we've covered today are all those reasons why we've taken our eye off the ball. If that football club can't find a solution, it will be because nobody's willing to give in on what they believe and the strength of what they believe. I think everybody has to sort of look themselves in the mirror and go, you know what, maybe we do have a protocol or a rule or we might have something that we're not allowed to do. And the, the government may say you're not supposed to do that, but with, these are different times, Matt. These are different times and we shouldn't be worrying about a precedent that might get set because it'll upset a few people. We should be figuring out how to keep Derby County part of that community because it's important to them and their economy. So while we like it to use football as the catalyst and it's an asset sector and it's growth and all the stuff, don't lose sight of why they all existed in the first place. Gary, thank you so much for giving us your time. Well, thank you, Mark. And thank you, Matt. Thank you for the time. Cheers, Gary. Thank you. Thank you very Take much, care. Gary. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Right, that's it. Uh, you can subscribe to The Athletic right now and get a 33% discount. Just go to theathletic.com slash football pod and I'm back on Tuesday for the Athletic Football Podcast rounding up everything that happened during the January transfer window thanks for listening The Athletic